We're in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10. Please turn there. Um, If you've been with us throughout Hebrews, or maybe this is your first or second time listening, I just want to give you the context. Um, The point of Hebrews is essentially this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's writing to Jewish believers, Hebrews, people who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but they grew up with that Jewish culture, that Jewish upbringing, that Jewish background. They believe the Messiah has come. And there's kind of that tug in their heart of wanting to continue with the law, the temple, the priesthood. They want to maybe go back to what they're familiar with and comfortable with. And yet he's saying, no, no, Christ is better. Christ is a fulfillment of all of those things. Everything your heart longs for, whether it's the law, listen, that's written on your heart. You want a priesthood? Jesus is your high priest. You want a temple? Well, Jesus actually uh, went into a better temple and atoned for our sins. So everything in Hebrews is pointing us to Jesus. And he basically is writing to a bunch of people who are discouraged, beat up, tired. Church, please listen. The context of what they walk through then is, I can't say similar, but um, they walk through very extreme, painful, difficult moments in their culture, in their society. Remember, this is a time where the church is going underground. Caesar Nero is persecuting the church very aggressively. Uh, Christians are literally being fed to lions in the Colosseum, lit on fire. I mean, tortured in brutal ways. And the author is saying, don't give up, endure, keep your eyes on Jesus. And if you think about all the oppression, all the just terrible things that are happening to them, and yet they have this focus on Jesus and the gospel. And I think this is so essential for us. And so let me kind of catch you up to where we're at now. When we read chapter 10, we're going to look through verse 1 through 18 today. But as we walk through this, this might sound a little familiar. Um, The author, I think in this section specifically, is kind of now summarizing everything he's been saying. So it's almost like one more time he wants to address everyone in every way. And if you're a parent, maybe you know what this is like, where you're like, I'm going to tell you one more time, right? This is kind of what the author's doing. Or even if you're a kid, I remember, you know, Micah for us, it's like, can I just jump in the pool just one more time, just one more time? And this is kind of the author's plea of that one more time. Um, I think this is his way of not just summarizing everything, but listen, if God finds it necessary to repeat himself, um, it's probably vitally important. Usually when the Bible repeats something, it doesn't mean it's less important. It means it's even more important. Um, I think you see this throughout the scriptures where when something is repeated, God is trying to bring our attention to that. So if God repeats himself, I think we should focus. It's been said that great teachers will repeat themselves. Let me repeat that. I'm kidding. Um, but that idea is the Bible is trying to repeat itself. So it really hammers home this point. And really what we're going to see in this is a few different thoughts that Jesus satisfies every need we ever had. He's the ultimate sacrifice. God has written a new law, new covenant on our hearts, and we're going to walk through this in just a bit. So why don't we do this, actually? Um, I'm going to say that we just pray for a moment, even before we read the text. We're not going to read the text. We're just going to pray and just invite the Lord to speak to us. I'm going to ask you just wherever you're at at home. Um, I know it's just still maybe different to watch on a TV or computer or phone, And if you need to put away anything that could be distracting, turn off notifications, whatever you might need to do, please do that. Um, We'd love for you to be present, be in the moment, just to say, Holy Spirit, speak to me. I want to hear from you. God, why is it you're repeating some key truths? Or why is it that the author is saying some things over and over again? What, What do we need to hear today? And I believe that through the text, through God's word, through the Holy Spirit, he's gonna address some things in our lives that still maybe just need to go addressed. And so why don't we just take a second, wherever you're at, Um, just silence anything and just pray and invite the Lord to speak and then I'm going to pray. Father, that is our hope today is just to slow down and hear from you. God, we don't want this just to be a Bible study. We want it to be more than that where your spirit meets us, where the word of God comes alive. Where God, this is a living book, and we believe that you want to do new things in us. God, if we're comfortable in our our faith, or just maybe kind of on that hamster wheel in our faith of just going round and round, Jesus, we ask that you'd break us free from that. God, I just want to pray for our church that there would be a boldness for you, for for who you are, for what you've done. 
that, God, we would not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of you, God, to salvation, that there would be a sense of boldness and excitement that comes from your word. Holy Spirit, would you just do what it is you want to do in our lives, where we need conviction, where we need to grow, where we need to repent, God, where we need to be encouraged, where we need to be built up, God, where we need to be spurred on to love and good works, we ask that you would just do that. And just even at home right now, as maybe there's kids or noise or distraction, um, that Jesus, we'd be able to focus. God, that we, are, we not just have open Bibles, but open hearts right now to receive from you. So Lord, please speak. We want to hear. We want to be used. We want to appreciate what it is you've done for us. In your wonderful name, amen. You know, I've mentioned this before, uh, but my mom was adopted. My grandma went to um, get an abortion back in 1960, before this was, before abortion was legal. And thankfully, she got cold feet, she got scared, and she decided to give my mom up for adoption. I'm very thankful for that, um, because we wouldn't be here, generations would be changed. I'm very thankful for that. So my mom was given up for adoption in 1960. And um, I think for so long, we didn't really know, like, our heritage, our background. My mom has kind of blonde hair, blue eyes, so we just figured we were German. Uh, We figured out it was maybe in our heritage. But somewhat recently, I think in the last year or two, my mom did one of those ancestry, you know, tests, one of those DNA tests. I think those are like a big thing. I'm sure a lot of you have done them, 23andMe or Ancestry.com or one of those things where you take a test to find out your heritage. And it was interesting because, again, I didn't know, I didn't know half of me. Um, even my dad's side, I'm really not sure. But I only knew like half of me. So we're kind of curious, like, what is mom? Like, what is, what is, what is her background? What's her ethnicity? What, what is it? Obviously, we figured some sort of European, but we didn't really know. And so uh, we thought we were primarily, like, we're like, we're probably 80% German. We found out we're like 80% Welsh and English, or she is 80% Welsh and English and like Northwestern European. You know, it's kind of that hybrid mud of she's Irish and Scottish. That was terrible, but she's that Irish and Scottish. Uh, I think she had like 5% Swedish in her and like 3% Scandinavian and like 1%, I think, mixture of things. And it's, it's just fun, right? You can, re- I, was, I was clicking on the website and just trying to read through just some of the, the history of those countries or uh, even migrating here to America, just trying to read through it. And there's a part of it where when you study your, your history, when you study your heritage, there's an appreciation there's an appreciation for what maybe previous ge- generations went through. Um, there's just something about it. You're like, I want to know the culture. I want to know the food. I want to know the music. I want to I know. I love talking to people and hearing their background, their heritage, their story. And you hear like what makes them them, the music they like, the food they like. And you just kind of feel like the customs and culture they grew up with. You kind of get a, a sneak peek into who someone is. And it's very refreshing to do that. And here's why I'm bringing this up. Because we are followers of Jesus. We believe in a Jewish Messiah. Like, we got to get this, that we have a really, obviously, we have a strong Jewish history. This is primarily a Jewish book written by Jewish authors to Jewish people for the sake of Gentile nations coming to believe in Jesus. But I really want you to think through this with me. Like, we have a rich heritage. And even whatever your heritage or background is, just as a follower of Jesus, there's a sense where you have, like, these Jewish roots, this Jewish culture, prophets, Everything we're trying to understand, we, we want to like, go back to our roots a little bit. And that's why I appreciate Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews is saying, hey, for us, I believe, it's like we're appreciating things we never maybe appreciated. The details within the temple, the details of sacrifices and how they're to be sacrificed and what was the purpose of those different types of sacrifices. I mean, all of these things we really didn't have a, con- we didn't grow up with. There was no context for us. And so Hebrews kind of forces us in some ways to look back at our heritage and to appreciate. Listen, honestly, we are in debt to the Jewish community. The, the way they, they um, just copied the text over and over again. The fact that you and I have a Bible in our hands today. The fact that there are, I believe, over 30,000 manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts, documents. I mean, just to pointing back to the word of God. Very thankful for our Jewish. I think that's why, for me, there's this passion of bringing people to Israel or wanting people to experience Israel because there's a side of it where you want to know, like, this is where Jesus was. This is where this prophet was. This is where this story happened. Things we've read and seen. Like, we get to now see it uh, face to face. There's just something beautiful about that. And here's why I'm bringing this up. A lot of Hebrews can be very hard to understand without this background knowledge. A lot of Hebrews can be very difficult if you didn't grow up in that culture and context, and if you didn't study Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and and apply that and have the festivals, go to the yearly festivals that they have, a lot of it would be very, it's difficult for us to understand. So a lot of Hebrews is, for me, to try to give context to our history, 
to help us understand times and events and things that happen so we can see more importantly how they speak of Christ. So we can look at the law, the priesthood, the festivals, the temple, everything, the ceremonies, the things that we go, what is this in here for? And we see how it speaks of and relates to Jesus and points to Jesus. And this is kind of a summary of all that. In chapter 10, verse 1 through 18, we see this summary in many ways of what he's already been talking about, the priesthood, sacrifices, the new covenant. And so we're going to go over this, and he's comparing and contrasting a few things. So I want to do this. We're going to look at this uh, comparing and contrasting of what he's walking through. So we're going to see, here's the four points today, shadow versus reality, paper versus person, insufficient versus sufficient, old versus new. All right. So one more time, we're going to look at this and talk through this. Verse one through four, he's going to bring up the shadow versus the reality. All right. Hebrews chapter 10, verse one, it says, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never, sorry, and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins, but in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. All right, the shadow versus the reality. Verse one says this phrase, the law having a shadow of good things to come. A shadow of good things to come. The temple, the law, the priesthood, he's saying this wasn't the form, this wasn't the image, this wasn't the physical, this was the shadow. We've mentioned this before, but Paul picked up on this theme in Colossians 2. Paul says the ceremonies, what the festivals, what we celebrate as a Jewish culture and community, he goes, all of these are a shadow. It's Colossians 2.17. It says it this way. Paul writes, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So notice that Paul in Colossians 2 says the same thing this author says here. A shadow of good things to come. A shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Church, here's my my hope. Um, We should love and appreciate the Old Testament. Read it. Read Malachi, read Micah, read the prophets, um, read what happened in the nation of Israel, read about the, the kingdoms and that split, read about it. And realize that it's pointing to and speaking of Christ, that that is a shadow pointing to something greater and the substance is Christ. Now this whole idea of shadow versus reality, it is interesting. Many commentaries actually think that the author of Hebrews is pulling from some of Plato's writings. Maybe you remember this back in high school, maybe in college, uh, Plato wrote The Republic. And in book seven, he has this analogy called like the cave. Now, maybe you've heard of that. Remember that. Essentially, there's men uh, tied up in this cave. They're staring at the wall. There's a fire behind them. And there's like this walkway or pathway where people are passing through. And they can see shadows projected on this wall. And in the cave by Plato, he's talking about all these shadows that are on the wall. They think that's like reality. They think the shadows are the real thing. They don't realize there's something behind the shadows, that there's substance behind the shadows. And so one day one man gets free and he, ha- he goes out of the cave and he leaves and he sees this world of figures and forms and he, he slowly begins to realize what I thought was reality was not reality, that was just the shadow. And he goes back and tries to convince the men who are tied up, no, no, listen, the shadows are not reality. There's actually substance behind it. Now, some people think he's kind of pulling from that uh, analogy from the cave. And, and in some ways you go, maybe there's some truth to that, but that truth still stands, right? When you think about this, even today, we'll try to use that analogy in different ways, that people think something is true because that's their experience, but there's substance. What is the, not versus, you know, subjective truth versus, you know, objective truth. And you're saying there's substance behind maybe some of the things we're seeing. See, I want us to get this. The Bible's saying some of the things you and I experience, Old Testament law, priesthood, even just things that we might walk through on a day-to-day basis, that is a shadow. What is the true reality? What is the true substance? And the author says the substance is Christ. Like, don't miss it. The things we chase, I, I think there's a song, I forget if this is the title I used to listen to, I think it's called Chasing, Chasing Shadows. Anyways, but the idea is like we're pursuing things, we're chasing after things that are meaningless, that there's no substance, there's no form, there's nothing behind it. I mean, imagine my wife goes on a trip, she's gone for a while, and she's coming back, and she's out in the distance, and I can't really see her, but the sun's behind her, it's kind of blocking my eyes, but I see like, the sun casting a shadow. 
and imagine I see my wife's shadow coming. And what if I just fall on the ground, hugging the shadow, kissing the shadow, like, you're back, I love you, I miss you. And she gets closer and closer, I'm still hugging and kissing the shadow, and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, shh, don't talk, I'm kissing the shadow. Like, that wouldn't make sense. There's, there's substance there, there's a person there. And, and here is the idea. Sometimes we can worship things that are the shadow, or we can focus on things that are shadow, when in reality, it's, it's all about Christ. It's pointing to a better thing to come. See, I, I want us to hear this phrase, actually, it's, it's verse 3. And it's so good. He says, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Think about this. Imagine you're going to the temple with your little lamb, your little goat, your your sacrifice, right? And you're bringing it to be sacrificed year after year after year. You had to bring your animal to have its blood shed for your forgiveness of sins, or really for your covering of sins. And think through that what that would do. The author, Hebrews 10.3 says, it was just a reminder of their sins. I mean, how defeating is that? Imagine if as you're going to the temple, you're like, yep, still a sinner, still killing another poor, helpless little animal on my behalf. It was a reminder of just your sin. Year after year, I don't know if there's some, some place you drive by or something in your life, some token that just kind of reminds you of your past and that just it brings old feelings, old guilt, old shame. That's what the sacrifices would do. It just kind of brought up some old memories, some old sins, some, some old shame. It is a reminder of sins year after year. And see, this is why we're talking about this today. Because man's greatest problem is sin. And if you think about what is, what is the problem that plagues man? What is the problem that plagues our country? There's so many things we can identify. And all of those really are just a symptom of sin. Like, let's talk about this. The, the root, not the fruit, but the root or the heart of the problem is a sin problem. And if you think about this, the Bible addresses the biggest issue, which is my heart is corrupt. Your heart, by nature, we're sinners. You know, there's a phrase, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, right? Think through that. We're not sinners because we sin. You know, it's not that because I do bad things, therefore I'm a sinner. I sin because I am a sinner. I mean, that's, my, that's just in me. That's my nature, my DNA. Ephesians 2 says, by nature, you are children of wrath. So by nature, I'm a sinner. So I sin because I am a sinner. That is the, there's the heart of the problem is that's just who I am. It's in my DNA. I think about this in my kids. We're like right away, like, you know, even my beautiful daughter, who's, you know, 15 months, who I'm like obsessed with, you know, she can hit and she can like have it like scream and just throw stuff on the ground when you tell her not to. I mean, I'm like, oh wow, she already has a sin nature already coming out. We don't have to teach her how to hit her brother. She just did it. And it's crazy. You're just seeing this come out by nature. We're just sinners. And here's the idea. Year after year, they'd bring a sacrifice to the temple, and it was just a reminder. It was a reminder, I'm still a sinner, I'm still a sinner, I'm still a sinner. And you can imagine it would be so defeating. You know, there's an article, maybe you've heard about this, but G.K. Chesterton was a brilliant Christian writer and thinker, and he has some of the best arguments for Christianity. And so I'd encourage you, G.K. Chesterton, look him up. Great arguments, great writings on Christianity. Anyways, um, he was asked by like a newspaper publishing company. They said uh, they wanted to get some perspective from different men in their community and said, G.K., you know, we're asking everyone this question, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong? And they expected like a thorough in-depth answer. Maybe you've heard this. And he simply, you know, mailed them back the, his answer. He said, dear sir, I am. His response to what's messed up, what's wrong in the world, he's saying, it's me. Like the issue's not out there, the issue's in me, it's in my heart. See, the idea of a sacrifice year after year, which is reminding them of their sin. Now, how discouraging would that be? So here's why this is so good for us today. When Jesus comes on the scene and when Jesus talks about the New Testament, the New Covenant, Jesus says something really interesting. He says, as often as you drink this cup and often as you eat this bread, He said, do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me. Please listen. The sacrifice would remind them of their sin and how much they've blown it. Jesus says, when you take Passover and take communion, when you share this meal, when you share this cup, he says, don't remember your sin, remember your savior. This is so significant. I cannot stress this enough. When I talk to Christians who are discouraged in their sin, and they're like, Josiah, I've done some terrible things. My past haunts me. I feel like God can never love me, never accept me we're not told to focus on our sin. We're told to focus on our Savior. We're told to remember Him. Sacrifices reminded them of their own sin. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, remember your Savior who paid for your sin. Don't remember your your sin. Remember your Savior. Do this in remembrance of me. 
I mean, again, think about today how we can set up our own little sacrificial systems. You know, how much did I read the Bible? How much did I pray? Did I serve? Did I help? Am I doing all these good things? And we can sort of try to atone for our sins by being good. And we try to be good for the sake of having favor with God. And we do not, I don't know if we fully grasp it all the time that I, I don't do good things to have a right relationship with God. I don't do good things to get God's approval. I have God's approval. Therefore, I do good things. I don't remember my sin. I remember my Savior. And this just changes everything. It's the shadow versus the reality. It's that they would go to the temple year after year, remind themselves of their sin, and Jesus comes on the scene and says, don't remember your sin, remember me. Remember your Savior. Listen, we have the, sh- we have the substance, not the shadow. You know, verse four is key. Where I just want to point out really quick again. It says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It's not possible that the sacrificial system could ever take away. It could only cover sin. It could only mask it temporarily, but it could never take away sins. And so that's the blood of Jesus we talked about last week, the week before in chapter nine. And this is why this is so, this is good news. That it's Jesus' blood that met every requirement for us. You know, Billy Graham, um, very famous preacher, very famous evangelist, would go around and have just these mass gatherings where people would come and hear about Jesus, believe in Jesus worldwide. I think they said he spoke to over two billion people in his lifetime. Like billions of people have heard him face to face, let alone on the radio. I mean, just crazy, crazy amount of numbers. But Billy, when he was in his early 30s, uh, he was just getting started off in, in ministry. And he spoke at Cornell University and he gave a powerful message on the blood of Jesus and how the blood of Jesus cleanses you of your sins. And this professor from Cornell comes to him and says, um, Billy, I don't, I don't know you, but I can tell you, you're gonna have a promising future. And he, he said, he gave him this advice. He said, listen, you will have a phenomenal future. Just leave out the blood talk. I mean, this isn't, this isn't for today's modern world. Peop, it's kind of barbaric. People don't really get it. I think you'll be a phenomenal preacher as long as you don't talk about the blood. And Billy writes, and he says, you know, I purpose from that day forward, I would talk even more about the blood of Jesus. I purpose from that day forward, Satan doesn't want us to talk about the blood of Jesus. And I feel like he's like trying to block that. So he goes, I'm actually gonna talk more about the blood of Jesus. And if you know Billy Graham's like history, that's what he focused on was the blood of Jesus. And you see his, his I don't want to say his success, but the Lord's success as he talked about the blood of Jesus. Listen, bulls and goats can never take away sins, but the blood of Jesus can and did. It did. See, we have the reality, not the shadow. Number two, we're gonna keep going. Verse five, we have uh, the person, not the paper. So paper versus person. Verse five, it says it this way. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, verse eight, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law that he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That's the key. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Um, Paper versus person. The idea by person, here's what I mean. We'll throw up the verses. A body, a body you have prepared for me. Verse 10 says, through the offering of the body of Jesus. They had the law. They had what was written out on paper. They had the sacrificial system. We have a person. A body you have prepared for me. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. So the author quotes from Psalm 40 and 1 Samuel 15. Write that down, Psalm 40 and 1 Samuel 15. Here's why this is so important. Stay with me. Um, you're going to notice if you open up Psalm 40 and read verse 6 through 8, and you read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 through 7, you're going to see that it's not quoted identical. You're going to be like, whoa, people try to use this. Hebrews 10 doesn't quote Psalm 40 perfectly. Uh, if you notice actually in verse 5, it says, a body you have prepared for me. While in Psalm 40, it talks about my ears you have pierced, my, my ears you have dug out. Now, why does he change that? First of all, um, this is either he's quoting Jesus who said this because it says he said, so he's possibly quoting Jesus who came on the scene and quoted Psalm 40, but he wanted to put his own uh, words to it. So Jesus is actually more just speaking himself and they're quoting Jesus. And that's obviously Jesus can say what he wants. Or again, just don't forget the Holy Spirit wrote Hebrews, the Holy Spirit wrote Psalm, the Holy Spirit can um, quote himself however he wants. All right. There's a side of this where you got to see that this is speaking of Jesus. Now, the difference I want to point out 
He says, a body you have prepared for me, versus Psalm 40, he says, my ears you have like pierced, my ears you have opened. The idea behind that is this, listen, uh, back in Exodus, back in the Old Testament, if you had a slave working for you for a period of seven years, they would be freed after seven years. Seven years of work, seven years of labor. If the, if the slave said, owner, master, you've been good to me, meaning they might be a slave for various reasons. They maybe need to borrow money. It could have been plenty of reasons why, but they would be a slave for seven years. On the seventh year, they'd be set free. Now, if the slave goes, I want to actually continue to work for you, but I don't, I'm going to be a bond slave, a bond servant. I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to willingly and freely work for you because you've been such a good master. They'd actually pierce the ear of that slave, and that was that pierced ear with a ring through it, would communicate that was a slave who is free, but is willingly serving their master. Now think about Jesus. Jesus, who comes on the scene and says, I'm here, Father, God, to submit to your will. I'm gonna do whatever it is you want me to do. I'm your bond slave, your bond servant. He had more than his ear pierced, he had his hands and feet pierced, he had his side pierced. He had his heads pressing through with nails, right? With, with the crown of thorns. Jesus had other parts of his body pierced to really communicate this truth of, I'm here to serve you, God. Just like the slave would say, I'm here to do your will. I'm, I'm doing this freely and willingly because I'm choosing to do this. Jesus, same thing. He willingly came. He willingly served. He willingly was pierced for you and for me. But I love this Hebrews flair to it where he says, a body you have prepared for me. This is so key. You see, this is communicating the idea that the incarnation that God would become a man was communicated in the Old Testament. The fact that God would one day enter into human history, that God himself, and please, church, I need to hear this. God is not just in heaven, in the sky, saying, earth, I love you, earth. He's not just trying to tell us from heaven. God actually came to earth, walked among us, and could tell us face to face, I love you. God is not distant in heaven shouting, I love you. Don't you trust me? Believe me that I love you. God actually came to earth face to face to be able to look us in the eyes and say, I love you, and I love you so much. I'll die for you. I'll give my life for you. I, God, will take on humanity, and I will literally die and rise again so you can live. And so Psalm 40, and then really the author of Hebrews quotes as saying, God prepared a body for him. God prepared this moment for him. One author put it this way, there is no question that the author is convinced about the reality of the preexistence of Christ. There's no question. So this Psalm 40 section that he's quoting, he's saying the whole point is that he came to do the will of God just like a bondservant would, to do the will. I'm willingly serving, I'm willing to enter. And God, you prepared a body for me to do this, to enter into this. Now, here's what's interesting. He also is quoting from 1 Samuel 15. So Psalm 40 seems to be a psalm written about a story that took place in 1 Samuel 15. This is kind of, um, I don't know, uh, this is kind of has like a meaning within a meeting. So Psalm 40 is referring to a story in 1 Samuel 15. Now here's the story in 1 Samuel 15. If you remember, Samuel, who was a prophet, anoints King Saul to be the first king of Israel. Saul begins to get prideful in his heart, begins to do things his own ways. God says to Saul, or Samuel tells Saul, listen, the Lord has said, you're going to fight the Amalekites. The Amalekites are the people who try to just kill all of you. You're going to go and you're going to fight and you're going to win. And don't keep the king alive and don't keep the cattle alive. They're going to die. Like there's going to be justice for what happened. And so if you remember the story in 1 Samuel 15, uh, Saul, the king, keeps king, the king alive, King Agag alive. Saul also collects a lot of the cattle, and he basically, in his mind, is going, I'm going to collect the cattle to use as sacrifices for God. Samuel knows of this, hears of this, and approaches King Saul and says, why didn't you fully obey God? Now listen to this dialogue back and forth. It's 1 Samuel 15. It's going to be in verse 9. Listen to this. But, uh, it says, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. Verse 13, it says this, and Samuel came to Saul and said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So king, king Saul goes, Samuel, I've done it. I've done exactly what God asked of me. And then Samuel goes, but why do I hear sheep? Why do I hear them? Why do I hear the oxen? If you did what God asked you, why do I hear them making noise? Verse 22, here's what Samuel said. First Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, listen, has the, Lord as great, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Please don't miss the context of this. King Saul goes, Samuel, 
Look, I obeyed God in all of his ways. Saul, Samuel says to Saul, why do I hear sheep and oxen? You didn't kill them all. You, didn't, you spared them. And then the king has the audacity to say, well, listen, I spared them because I want to use them as offerings and sacrifices to God. Like my heart is pure. My heart is good. I'm actually, I kept these alive to, to be sacrifices. And this is where the idea comes from. So he goes, no, no, obedience is greater than sacrifice. Obedience is greater than offering. Please listen, please. And I, I don't want to miss, I don't want you to miss the context of this. Here's the big idea. God is basically saying there will never be a need for sacrifice if you obey. The reason why there's sacrifices is because you disobey. The reason why you have to kill an innocent animal is because of your sin, because of your disobedience. Because you disobey, there is sacrifice. So in your mind, you think, well, I'm saving these animals for sacrifices. God's like, just obey me. And there's no need for sacrifices. Do you get it? Do I get it? The point of this? This is saying, listen, if you just obeyed, if you just obeyed, there'd be no need for sacrifices. Obedience is greater than sacrifice because if you obeyed, there'd be no sin committed and there'd be no need for sacrifice. So here is the point of this text. He's saying Jesus comes on the scene and what does he do? He obeys. He says, I've come to do your will, Father. I've come to fulfill your will. The idea is Jesus obeyed perfectly. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly and yet he still died. And yet he still now died a substitutionary death for us on our behalf. So Jesus actually did what was desired, which is God's like, I want you to obey and not offer sacrifices. The emphasis for them was on sacrifices. Jesus came, obeyed perfectly, and then became the sacrifice on top of that. And so the whole, the whole idea for us is we have a person. We don't have, uh, we have more than just the law, the commandments. We have more than just the sacrificial system. We have someone who came on the scene, on the scene and he obeyed perfectly. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said, uh, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus goes, I, I didn't come here to destroy the law and the prophets. Don't think that the new covenant means that the old covenant's abolished. It's just more that Jesus fulfilled it, and now we've walked into the new covenant. It's not that the old covenant's bad. It's that it's fulfilled, that Jesus fulfilled it. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. Paul would pick on the same thing in Galatians 3 and says in Galatians 3.24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was our teacher, our tutor to bring us to Christ. The law said this, keep this commandments. God's like, I want you to obey, not give sacrifices. We go, we want to obey, but we just can't. It's not within us to obey. So God says, okay, therefore offer sacrifices to atone for your sins. But what I really want is obedience. Well, guess what? Jesus came on the scene and says, I kept the law perfectly. I fulfilled the law. The law now brings us to Christ, something that we could never keep, something that we could never do. So I've, I've had these conversations with Christians before where it's like, so do I need to keep the law? Do I need to keep the law? It's like a, a really interesting question. Um, Jesus kept the law for you. You couldn't keep the law if you wanted to. Do you need to keep the law? You, you and I couldn't. I couldn't keep all the commandments if I wanted to. I want to. I can't keep all the commandments. Jesus kept it for me on my behalf. Do I have to keep the law then? Well, the desire is yes to walk in the law of God, but even, but even in that, it's not because I want to get God's favor. It's because I already have it. Do I want to keep the law? Absolutely. Can I keep the law? No. The law brings me to Jesus. The law points me to Jesus, the one who could keep the law, the one who kept it for me on my behalf. See, the, the law, as Paul says in Galatians 5, the law can be summarized in one word, love. The whole idea is, listen, if I love God, I'm not going to want to place any other idols before him. If I love one another, I'm not going to want to steal and lie and covet. If I truly love God and love people, uh, I'm not going to break the law. Am I going to break the law? Absolutely. And guess what? Um, that was already paid for on Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly for my behalf and for your behalf. Listen, we don't keep the law because we have to. We keep, we keep the law because we get to. We want to. We keep the law because, uh, again, I'm married. If you're married, you get this. Your spouse will love you no matter what. No matter what. You don't abuse that. You don't say, awesome, I'll love you no matter what. Let me do whatever I want to do now. You say, no, you love me so well, so completely. I want to do what will please you. And I will fall short and you'll forgive me and, and I'll, move, I'll move forward in that. And this is that covenantal relationship we have with God, that we have a person, not paper. We have the reality, not the substance. We'll keep going to number three. Uh, number three, we're going to see what's insufficient versus sufficient. So let's keep reading this. Verse 11, it says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, which can never. Verse 12, But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. 
For by one offering, he has perfected those who are being sanctified. So he's saying they could never possibly remove sins. It could never do that. It was insufficient, but Jesus's work on the cross was sufficient. Jesus now sitting down at the right hand of God until he makes his enemies his footstool. Again, quoting from Psalm 110. But he's saying, it's done, it's finished, it's sufficient. The law was insufficient, the priesthood was insufficient, the sacrifices were insufficient. Jesus is sufficient. He's sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. And, and this is what we, we have to focus on, that it is done and it is finished. And I love the phrase, to make his enemies his footstool. Guys, I, I want us to get this. Please stay with me on this thought. Jesus has won. The war is over. Is there little battles? Absolutely. Are there battles happening? Absolutely. But the war is over. Listen, we know how the story ends. Satan is defeated. Sin is defeated. Hell is defeated. Satan is cast into the lake of fire forever. We know how the story ultimately ends. That Jesus wins. That we are the bride of Christ. Therefore, we win. That we don't have to fear sin, hell, death, Satan. That Jesus has conquered it and won it all. So for you and I today, in this moment, is there battles? Absolutely. Is there sin, struggles, temptation? Absolutely. But the idea is we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. So we're not trying to fight for victory here. We're not trying to say, let's just keep fighting because maybe one day we'll have victory. We have victory in Jesus. We're fighting from victory. So we're trying to move forward from this place of victory. So as you approach sin and temptation, <clears throat> as you approach struggles in your life, understand I'm trying to still teach myself and preach the gospel to myself in this way. I'm not trying to fight for victory here. I'm fighting from a place of victory. So let me give you, kind of give you an illustration of this. Um, in April 9th, April 9th, 1865, Ulysses S. Grant, uh, met with Robert uh, Ely, I believe. Is, that is his, I think it's Robert Ely. They met and they signed uh, the, the peace treaty to end the Civil War. Right, great day. Necessary. <laughs> um, you look at that day. The, the, there was peace. The war was over. But guess what happened? In the south, in lower Alabama, there's a, a battle called at Fort Blakely where even after this date, obviously they didn't have social media, they didn't have the news that we had. Even after the peace treaty was signed, there was still a battle at Fort Blakely. And hundreds of people were lost. A lot of blood was shed. Bullets were fired. They didn't know about the peace. They didn't know that peace has already happened, but there were still battles. The best way I can put this is like that, where Jesus has already conquered sin, hell, and death. That peace is already established, and yet maybe that hasn't gone to the far-reaching corners of the earth. And yet there are still little battles happening. You see, if you think about this, we know that Jesus has won. We know that he conquered the things that you and I never could conquer. We don't have to fear death, sin, hell, Satan, that Jesus has won it all. And yet there's still those little battles happening. And we gotta remind ourselves, I'm not trying to fight here this spiritual battle to get victory. We have victory, we're fighting from victory. The war is over, but there's still these little battles happening and creeping in. And, and this is what we're gonna, and, and I guess here's the question. We're kind of going, well, why wait? Like, why is God waiting? So, meaning if Jesus is waiting to make his enemies his footstool, why is there this, why is there this wait? Why between the death and resurrection of Jesus, here we are 2,000 years later, like what is going on with that? This is a hard question to answer. The only thing I can point you back to is 2 Peter 3, 9. And here's what the verse says in the ESV. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Let's be honest. Some say this is taking a little while, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the idea is like, I don't, I don't get this. We're going, God, you conquered sin, hell, and death on the cross. You rose again from the grave. You've given us new life. Why are we here 2,000 years later? All I know is that God is giving people, you and I, time. He doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That all should reach repentance. That there's a time right now where God's saying, hey, listen, I'm moving in this, in this way of grace. Repent and believe on me and you'll be saved. And I don't fully get why there's this like gap, but God's saying you can believe on me and be saved. You can believe on me and, and everything will be changed. Listen, I want us to get this again. We already won the war. Jesus already won it. And there's still these little battles happening, absolutely. And there's this promise in Romans 16. I want you to hear this. No, on the cross, Jesus, in a sense, stepped on the serpent's head. Genesis 3 talks about how he'll crush the serpent's head, right? On the cross, Jesus crushed the serpent's head. His heel was bruised. Jesus died. The, Bible, the prophecy in Genesis 3 says his heel will be bruised. Jesus died, but the serpent's head was crushed, and yet Jesus rose again. Now, there's this promise in Romans 16, 20 that is so powerful. And I have to just read this because it gets me so excited. Romans 16, 20, it says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. I don't know. I love the God of peace, not the God of war. The God of peace will crush. I think it's funny that peace, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Like that is the best way to end it. Like just like Satan's head will be crushed under your feet and the grace of Jesus be with you. Like I just love the tone in that. And I just think about just this victor we have in Christ. The fact that Jesus crushed the serpent's head according to Genesis 3.15. And also how we too will crush Satan under our feet. The idea is Jesus won, therefore we win. Jesus gave us victory, therefore we have victory. Jesus crushed the serpent's head, therefore we too will crush Satan's head. The grace of Jesus be with you. My thing is if you feel like you're losing right now, if you feel like, but I don't feel like I'm winning anything, know that Jesus won it all. Know that Jesus won the war. You go, but I'm, I'm, I'm blowing it time and time again. I get that. When you, plight, when you fight from a place of victory rather than for victory, it changes everything. Don't feel like you have to fight for victory. Don't feel like you have to fight to make God love you. You already have God's love. You already have victory. Fight from that place. Fight from that place of confidence. It just changes everything when you can fight from a place of confidence. Knowing that it's not like God's like, come on, do five more good works, then I'll forgive you. Do f- 10 more good things, then I'll welcome you in. You're not trying to fight for victory, church. And this is something the gospel has to still constantly preach to my head and my heart because I grew up with that mentality of I'm not doing enough or there's not enough good things or my life isn't reflecting this. I'm not here to boast in my righteousness. I'm here to boast in Christ's righteousness and the cross of Christ. We're trying to boast in the finished work of Jesus and how he crushed Satan's head so you too crush Satan's head. I love that Paul's like, you'll crush Satan's head shortly to a church that was being fed to lions, to a church in Rome that was literally going underground where you can even to this day see the miles underground of where the church had, where the church met for church and, and drew things on the wall that still exists to this day. And they felt discouraged and defeated and beaten down. Even Paul, when he's on trial in Rome, says, everyone left me. Everyone's departed from me. And yet he has the boldness and confidence to know, but you will crush Satan under your feet shortly because why the war's already over. And so listen, what was once insufficient is now sufficient. And here's the last point, number four. We're going to see that again, this old versus the new. This old versus the new. Verse 15, it says it this way. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, and I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Where there's a remission for sin, there's no longer an offering for sin. Uh, The old versus the new. If you want more details on what he's quoting from, Jeremiah 31, 31, we did a super in-depth Bible study on this back in Hebrews 8. We walked through this in depth. I would encourage you to read that. The new covenant promise in Christ, fulfilled in Christ. How the old is done away, not abolished, not destroyed, but it's done away because it's fulfilled. And now how we have a new covenant and God no longer writes on tablets of stone, but on our hearts. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to this. The point of this that the author is pointing to is listen. Um, Sins were never really dealt with under the old, but they're dealt with in the new. Sins were covered for. Now think about this. This is so weird. Yearly, yearly, the priest would offer sins for himself and for the whole nation. The idea was this yearly sacrifice held back the wrath of God for one year. And then the next year it held back the wrath of God. And the idea is Jesus once and for all took all of the wrath of God, forever paid for it, and his, good, his life, his righteousness was applied to our account. So here's what I want to end with this thought. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton, who was a slave trader, who was a wicked, evil man, repented of his wickedness, repented of his sin. He got, his whole life was changed completely. He did more than write hymns. He became a pastor and an advocate uh, for uh, or against slavery. His life was just radically changed. And here's what he wrote at the end of his life. He said this, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. He goes, although my memory's fading, I do know this. I'm a filthy sinner. I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. What a great place to be at church. 
Church, like in my heart, I need to keep in mind that Josiah Graves is a filthy, wretched, sinful man, but Christ is a great Savior. You know what that does? That brings this deep humility and that this deep confidence in the finished work of Christ. That I don't have to be this timid, you know, ashamed, living with a sense of weight and guilt. That's been paid for. Now, does, is Josiah all those things? Yes and more. I, have I broken the law of God? Have I, am I worthy of just judgment? Absolutely. But the whole point is Jesus took that. Jesus paid for that. So I know this, I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. What a beautiful attention to keep in mind that yes, we're great sinners, but we have a great savior. That, that whom the son sets free is free indeed. That I'm not the sin that I was because of what Christ has done. And this is what he's offering us. That our, we cannot just have covering of sins, but removal of those sins. And in place of the removal, Christ's righteousness. That he writes his law in our heart. So with that, I want to end with this thought. Because here's the whole point of Hebrews. Hebrews is, don't go back. Jesus is better. You're tempted to go back to something that will not satisfy you or fulfill you. Don't go back. So church, again, in your own life right now, is there something you're desiring to go back to? Like, what is it where you think that Jesus isn't sufficient? That you think, I need to have one more experience with this. I need to go back to this. This will bring true, if I just made more money, if I just met this person, if I just went back to this party scene, if I could just go back, then I'd find fulfillment and sufficiency. And the author is saying, it's never, anything outside of Christ is not sufficient. Jesus is the only one who will bring that completeness, that satisfaction, that fulfillment. He's the only one that can offer you that sufficiency, that he's enough. So this is what I want to point us to, is don't go back. Don't have that longing finish the race, endure, run well. Paul, at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, his last letter, Paul, the last letter he wrote, he said this, he goes, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. Listen to that, let's just stop there. Finally, finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And he says, not to me only, but to all of those who love Jesus' appearing. There is this crown, and the crown, I think, is even more than a crown. It might be a crown. It might be a physical crown. I don't think so. I think it's more of a position. I think it's more crowns, oftentimes in the Old Testament, represented authority. So I think it's more of an authoritative position, a role in the kingdom of God, whatever that might look like. But he goes, there's finally, there's laid up for me this crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give to me, not to me only, but to anyone who loves his appearing. So church, love his appearing. Long for his appearing. Look for his appearing. Live for Jesus' coming. That the idea that you love it, you long for it, you're living for it, you're looking forward to it. And then he says this right, right after this. This is interesting to me. He's like, there's light for me the crown of righteousness. And then he, lay, he actually gives an example of someone who did not finish well. His name is Demas. In verse nine, it ends with this. He says, 2 Timothy 4, right after that verse, verse nine, he says, be diligent to come to me quickly for Demas has forsaken me. Why? Having loved this present world. The Bible has a lot to say about those who love the world. 1 John 2, 15 says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. That's one of those verses for me where I feel very convicted. Because you go, am I loving something that this world has to offer more than God who created the world? Am I putting something or a pursuit or passion in place more than God? Am I loving the world, the systems of the world, or the way the world works more than loving God? And here's Demas' mistake. He forsook Paul because he loved the world more than he loved God. He loved the things of the world more than he loved God. Paul's like, I finished my race. I've kept the faith. Uh, finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness and the Lord's gonna give it to me on that day. And Demas has forsaken me and he's not gonna be a part of that. It's like he's comparing his ending with Demas' ending. Church, all, here's what I'm getting at. Don't go back to the old when we're under the new. We're under the new, man. We are under the new covenant. We, have, we are a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. You and I are under the new. This, this word new, you see throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament in 1 John, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. We're under a new commandment, a new covenant. Uh, we have a new way to live, which is love. And the idea for you and I is don't go back to the old. For them, it might be the Jewish temple, priest, systems. For us, what is that? Don't go back to the old. Jesus is sufficient. He, he's the only one who can deal with the inner longings of the heart. What do you really need? What do I really need? My sin to be removed. Well, Jesus dealt with that. What do we really need? Peace and love and joy. Jesus came here to offer that and bring that. Don't go back to the old when you're under the new. We are under the new. 
Don't go back to some old system, some old person, some old relationship, some old habit, some old thing when God has called you to be and live under the new. Amen? We are going to pray, and we're going to ask that the Holy Spirit takes this and not make it just, again, a Bible study, that the Word of God would come alive to us, that yes, we study the Bible for the sake of life change, for the sake of transformation, for the sake of being better followers of Jesus. So let me just pray. We'll have a couple announcements, and we'll put up our questions for you guys as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we get to let your Word expose those things in our lives, that God, where we need, I need change. We need change. That Jesus, I need, to rem- I need to be reminded that I'm under the new. God, that you are sufficient, that nothing else will satisfy like you, Jesus. God, I ask that you just remind all of our hearts that Jesus, is, of what you've done for us is more than enough. That God, we have everything we need in you. And Lord, just fill everyone at home, everyone who might listen to this later, Jesus, our focus, our hope is that we would be followers, true followers of you, Jesus, and that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers, that your word would transform us, that we would just enjoy it, first of all, we'd be transformed by it, and that, God, we would do not out of obligation, not to get your favor, but that we would do out of love, that we have your love, and therefore we want to show your love. We have your love, therefore we want to communicate and display it. And so, Lord, we just ask for your Holy Spirit for help in this. God, that you would just change homes, families, marriages, lives, my life. That, Jesus, you would be above all. That we'd not put anything above you and in place of you. We ask this, Jesus, in your precious and your powerful name. Amen. Amen. Listen, we're going to put the questions up in just a second. A couple things. Again, um, Father's Day is next Sunday. Take a picture with Dad. Tag our church in it. We'll get it and be able to post it at 10 a.m. So join us next Sunday at 10 a.m. a little bit early so you can watch those photos kind of rotating through. We'd love for you to be part of it in that way. Also, you guys, we're like halfway through this season of groups. Um, We're like six weeks in. Join a group. Still time. Perfect time, actually. So we'd love for you to be part of community happening that way. Hey, guys, please would you just... um, I guess pledge to pray with us as we're looking through office space and really a central hub and headquarters for our church so we have some sort of gathering point um, even throughout the week. So we'd ask that you just pray for, uh, for us and with us in that. Lastly, we're going to put the questions up. Hey, you can um, talk about this with your uh, husband, wife, kids. Just walk through some of these questions. These questions will be on our social media page. So follow us again on Instagram and Facebook because that's how we kind of stay updated and share what we're doing and what's happening. But you can see the questions here. You can take pictures. You can go on social media. We'd love for you to be a part of it in that way. Uh, that is it, you guys. We love you. God bless you. We'll see you in groups. And uh, just can't wait to see what the Lord's going to do the next week or so. Love you guys. Bye.